student bodies, thanks for joining us for this month's Meeting of Super Chillers, an exclusive club where we read and discuss retro teen horror novels. I'm Katie. And I'm Jeffrey. This month's book is The Evil Twin by Francine Pascal. Will Margot win the final battle? Margot's monstrous plan is complete. She came to Sweet Valley to find a new life and discovered identical twins Jessica and Elizabeth Wakefield and their perfect family. If only Margot can get rid of one of them, she can take her rightful place in the Wakefield home. Now, the moment Margot has been waiting for has arrived. The twins aren't speaking to each other. Sweet Valley is in chaos. Mr. and Mrs. Wakefield are out of town. Margot has just enough time to do what she needs to do. Jessica and Elizabeth Wakefield are in mortal danger. The final episode in the explosive six-part miniseries, Will Sweet Valley Ever Be the Same? (laughs) So spooky. (laughs) So spooky, and I I disagree about Sweet Valley being in chaos. Yeah, no one knew anything about what was going on. (laughs) Not at all. They don't know until very late, and otherwise it's just like mall trips and go into the makeout spot. It's just Sweet Valley per per usual. Yeah. <laughs> There's maybe uh, 10 minutes where it seems to be in chaos. <laughs> Let's jump right into this month's chilling tale. <laughs> On this episode, we are covering The Evil Twin, which is the 100th book in the Sweet Valley High series created by Francine Pascal. This one was written by Kate William. I believe at this point in the series, many of the Sweet Valley High books were ghostwritten. But man, did Kate William do a great job with this. Kate William is actually a house name. Um, So there were a bunch of different ghostwriters at this time writing under that name. Uh, Though Francine was still writing the outlines, the the basic stories of each book. So Francine and Kate, quote unquote. Thank you. (laughs) Fascinating. So let's talk about the cover of this book. So I don't know about you, but this cover really put me in the Christmas spirit. Um, <laughs> mm, sure. Uh, on the sort of front cover, we see just an image of a broken Christmas ornament, kind of like foreshadowing to the tragic holiday season that the Wakefield family is about to have. <laughs> sure. And then when you open up the cover, we see these little like terrifying vignettes scenes that happen in the book the main vignette shows elizabeth and Margot kind of in the book's final showdown they're wearing matching dresses and one of the identical girls is holding a big knife behind her back and then in another vignette we see the wakefield twins sitting by the Christmas tree on Christmas morning (laughs) while um, a blonde woman is sort of very obviously peering in at them from a window. (laughs) She's not hiding. No, 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 it's it's very apparent. And then in the third, um, 
this one's kind of blacked out because of the barcode in my book, but it looks to yes. be <laughs> um, a man who has maybe been struck in the head. It looks like he's unconscious on the floor, which is a scene that takes place later in the book. Yes, I, I believe that's Todd, although I do not know who is touching him. Just a mysterious hand. Yeah, and I picture Todd as a blonde for some reason, but... <laughs> yeah, I did too. Yeah, interesting. Um, but it's very beautifully drawn, I thought, and very festive. Uh, what did you think? So <laughs> a lot of really great things to note about uh, this step back art. Um, well, first off, the, the design of these these covers on these Magna editions of Sweet Valley High books are quite interesting because you've got about a little more than two thirds of an actual like stiff cardboard cover. And then you have underneath that the step back art, which in this case, so if you're holding it closed, the about one third that peeks over the cardboard cover looks like wrapping paper, like Christmas wrapping paper. And at least in my copy, it has about the consistency of wrapping paper. So it looks terrible because it's all bent and awful looking. Now, the actual art inside of it, I think is quite great. Now, this art is by Bruce Emmett. I'm going to give you a little bit of information about him. But first, I did want to note the fact that the climactic scene that's being described of the pool house confrontation between Margot and Elizabeth. My favorite part is the representation of the dress that they're wearing, which is described as like an extremely racy dress. Like Elizabeth would never be caught dead in an outfit like this. And it looks like the, the tamest possible dress you could imagine. Yeah. I guess it doesn't have straps, um, but otherwise it is. I mean, it looks like something you would wear to like a middle school dance. Yeah. It looks like maybe it's from the movie White Christmas, like from the 1950s. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it was racy a few decades ago. If you if you went into the soda shop wearing that, you you'd draw some glances. But um, and of course, yeah, the top right uh, vignette is my favorite. Uh, we have Elizabeth and Jessica in their bathrobes, looking extremely depressed on their depressed Christmas morning. Uh, which is very funny in the book itself. Even their tree looks depressed. There's a bunch of like weird streamers that are just like drooping off of it. But the soulless eyes of Margot in the background as she's standing in the rain looking in at their Christmas celebrations is really just too much. It's it's perfect. <laughs> oh, I also there's one other thing I wanted to note about the the main scene being depicted here. Elizabeth's facial expression is not quite surprised enough by what she's seeing, which is her doppelganger in front of her. Instead, it kind of looks like she's trying to extend a glass of jungle prom punch uh, to Margot. like hey take this calm down okay so let me talk to you about Bruce Emmett um, I wasn't able to find too much information about him uh, although I know that uh, later on in the Sweet Valley series so like around this number and up um, up actually quite a ways um, towards the conclusion of the series itself he did a lot of covers for Sweet Valley High um, he also did a lot of covers for Sweet Valley Twins, and at least one of the minstrel period Nancy Drew books, I presume he probably did more. It would be weird if he just did one, um, but I can only find it credited for one. I did find a couple interviews and biographies of him. He started selling commercial art in the 1970s when he was still in art school, I and mean, he's still creating book covers today. You can find a few examples online, though he switched to a digital style, and they don't quite have the same flavor as uh, they used to back in the 80s and the 90s. I also found out an interview with him from 2018 that his favorite pastime is riding his horse. Oh. So <laughs> that's that seems like a very, like he belongs in Sweet Valley. Yeah, he should be one of the Patman family. 
he should be Bruce Patman. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Okay, should we dive into some character descriptions? We have a lot of characters in this book. We do. I tried to narrow it down to the essential ones. There are some characters who we spend a lot of time with who I would say are relatively non-essential to this story. Um, and of course, if you're familiar at all with Sweet Valley, there's there's a whole lot of people sort of like populating the margins who don't necessarily have huge roles to play, but sort of show up for their, their standard cameos. We may bore you a little bit here if you, again, know Sweet Valley really well. We do want to, of course, describe these major characters uh, for you, just so you have a sense of who they all are. Even though if you've been following along, I guess you've read 99 other books, well, it would probably be more than that, <laughs> about these twins. Um, so... Uh, first up, we have, of course, the Wakefield twins. Uh, Elizabeth Wakefield is really the star of the show in some ways. She is the perfect teenage girl. She's the preppier of the two twins. She's the overachiever, the perpetually wronged, and the prude. She's also mildly psychic, which is a descriptor I will give to almost all of the cast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Here, at the start of this book, she is fresh off of a possible manslaughter conviction for a deadly car accident that took place in the aftermath of Jungle Prom. What what do you have to share with us about Elizabeth? Same same comments. Uh, She's more studious, more demure than than her twin sister, Jessica. I do have a little bit of background on the on what happened at Jungle Prom um, that I can go into a little bit later. Uh, her, her twin, Jessica, is the wild twin. She is flirty, fashion-obsessed, boy-crazy, also mildly psychic, and slightly evil. It's a very human evil, but evil nevertheless. Yeah. Jessica has a weird relationship with Elizabeth. It's this balance of kind of adoring and caring for each other, and then also, especially on Jessica's part, feeling like an intense rivalry with Liz. She is actually fresh off of being actually to blame for the intoxicated car crash manslaughter of her own steady boyfriend, uh, a boy named Sam Woodruff, after that fateful night at Jungle Prom. Uh, (laughs) Anything to add about Jessica? (laughs) No, uh, same comments. Um, She's, you know, a bit more coquettish. She's a cheerleader, uh, definitely super popular. Um, I was just giggling at the fact that you keep referencing Jungle Prom, and they do reference (laughs) that throughout the book as though it's something that everybody should know about. (laughs) Yeah, um, they came up with, like Jessica and Elizabeth apparently came up with the concept of Jungle Prom uh, (laughs) themselves, but then they treat it as if it's just something that everybody understands, like, oh, of course, Jungle Prom, and they say it about 12,000 times over the course of the book. Next up, I I do want to very quickly detail the rest of the Wakefield family, because again, they do, they occupy such a large percentage of the word count, despite not really having much to offer to this particular narrative. Uh, First, there is Stephen Wakefield and his girlfriend, Bobby. Uh, Stephen is the older brother of uh, Elizabeth and Jessica. Presumably, he's the more responsible one, but he doesn't really fulfill that function at all. He is uh, constantly and incorrectly assuaging the girls' concerns about their parents' absence through most of the book, and does very little to comfort his sisters when tragedy strikes. At one point, he very heroically pops out to pick up some Tylenol. That's about the most that he does. He seems to be present in the story only to add tension to the finale because of tackling the wrong 
wrong suspect and providing some uh, requisite mildly horny teen couch pawing moments uh, <laughs> with his girlfriend and uh, and some uh, drawing the attention of the eye of uh, our villainess. Yeah, yeah, he's a bit of a Casper milk toast. But um, I do think that he does get more interesting later in this series, from what I hear. Ma and Pa Wakefield, who I didn't even bother to remember their names, um, they are, for the entirety of this book, until literally the last page where they do nothing except for rush and hug their daughters. Uh, they are off on a boring planes, trains, and automobiles adventure as they try to get home to the girls against bad weather and spurred by Ma's psychic visions that something is awry. Because uh, again, all of them have psychic powers. Utterly useless and pointless. Uh, at a certain point, I was just skimming their chapters. <laughs> there was nothing of value there at all. Yeah, I agree. I thought that it was funny that Alice kept mentioning that she has this mother's intuition, yet even when she was hugging this imposter daughter, she like wasn't aware that it wasn't her own daughter. So I'm no. not sure how strong her intuition can be. <laughs> no, her her only reaction at that moment, and it's so funny, actually, she goes, she's like kind of recoils a little bit. And she's like, oh, what kind of mother am I? Do I hate my own daughter? <laughs> it's like, well, that's not actually your daughter. Uh, that is actually Margot Chappelle. I don't know if they actually mention her name, her last name in the text, uh, but I did look it up and find it. That's a beautiful um, name. Margot Chappelle, yeah. <laughs> uh, Margot is, uh, again, our villainess. She is plum simply crazy. <laughs> she is an abused foster child who has left a trail of bodies in her wake as she's worked her way towards Sweet Valley, where she hopes to replace Elizabeth in the Wakefield home. Uh, I think because she like saw Elizabeth in, did she see her on the street or did she see her in a newspaper or something? <laughs> it was like just she saw her and she's like, oh, I'm going to be her. Yeah. So what happened again, Elizabeth is on trial for manslaughter uh, and yes, um, right. somehow the news of this case made it from California to Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> where Marco was staying. And she saw this girl on the cover who looked really similar to her and decided that she wanted to take her place. Now, taking the place of someone who is on trial for vehicular <laughs> manslaughter is maybe not the move that I would personally take, but you know, that was what she went with. <laughs> well, for Margot, it's like a lateral move. It's like not much change, yeah. uh, but you know, maybe an upgrade in family dynamics. And at least you're close to the ocean. <laughs> True. Sweet Valley, nice place to be. Uh, pardon the uh, earthquakes and all the murder, but otherwise it's good. Yeah, so apparently she looks identical to these twins, or nearly so. All she needed to do was lighten and cut her hair, and uh, she is a doppelganger. This is never really explained at all, though I do. I want to question Mr. Wakefield. Uh, has he been <laughs> to Cincinnati on any trips about, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago? Anyway. <laughs> She is extremely intimidating, Margot is, and uh, at times she talks like a like a noir crime mall, which is great. And also despite quote-unquote planning her crimes to perfection, in her words, she is in fact very bold and reckless throughout the much of this book and relies largely on luck and coincidence and a pretty big assumption that the Sweet Valley characters are too lazy and self-involved to compare notes about her and her movements in order to carry out her wicked scheme. And you know what? She's totally correct about that because they don't and they're never on to her until the very, very end. <laughs> 
Yeah, she's definitely not a tidy villain. Um, she leaves no. evidence everywhere. <laughs> yes, very messy. <laughs> she's also really committed to replacing Liz, even though it would obviously be easy for her, easier for her to impersonate Jessica. That's what I said, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she acknowledges it at some point. She's like, wow, I feel like I know Jessica even better than I know Elizabeth. And she's like, whoa, I'll have to really give Elizabeth like a, a, an attitude and friend makeover. I'll basically have to become Jessica. Yeah. And it's like, all right, why don't you just do that? Right. It's kind of an insult to Jessica, to be honest. Yeah, for real. Like she has to actively make herself more modest and more like prim and proper to become Elizabeth. But if her personality already matches Jessica to a T... Let's just right. be Jessica. <laughs> right. Especially because she's terrible at being Elizabeth. Like, everybody sees through it immediately. <laughs> They're like, wow, why are you like this? Yeah. Last little note about her is that she is routinely described as having a soulless gaze. Like, her eyes, there's just nothing there. In comparison to the twins, quote, warm, innocent, human eyes. <laughs> so, so we're possibly dealing with someone inhuman here. All right. Uh, a couple other characters of interest. First, there is Todd Wilkins. Uh, Todd is Elizabeth's steady boyfriend, who Jessica recently tried to steal during Liz's manslaughter trial. Oy vey. He is pretty thick-skulled, for instance. He does survive a braining, because apparently that skull provides quite a bit of protection. He is observant enough to repeatedly notice that the Elizabeth he keeps going out on dates with feels off from the Liz that he knows. Yet he does absolutely nothing about this. He just sort of embraces it. Oh, you want to go to the makeout spot and make out hot and heavy? Sure. Liz, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit of a lovable dum-dum. Then there is Lila, who is another Sweet Valley mainstay, Lila Fowler. She is a queen. She is filthy rich, petty, self-involved. Even Jessica, uh, who, you know, isn't necessarily scoring high on any tests here, thinks that, uh, <laughs> that Lila has rocks for brains and is very self-involved. She is throwing the big New Year's Eve party at her family estate where the climax takes place. Um, and uh, <laughs> she is also slightly psychic at one moment because, of course, she is. Uh, I love Lila. I think she's my favorite character of the bunch. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, this is the first Sweet Valley I've read in a long time, and I kind of remembered Lila as being meaner, but I thought in this book she was a good friend. Like, she was very ostentatious with her money, but she, like, helped cheer Jessica up. She was a good hype girl. Um, I really liked yeah, her. Yeah, true. <laughs> mm -hmm. Agreed. There are two dirt bike boyfriends <laughs> worth mentioning. Um, there's Sam Woodruff, who is dead. That is the one who died in the jungle prom related car crash. And this was, again, Jessica's uh, first steady boyfriend. Uh, Jessica dates around a lot. And Sam was like the one until he was uh, dead. Fortunately, she was able to replace him pretty quickly with a new dirt bike boyfriend, uh, James, who she met at the Sam Woodruff Memorial dirt bike rally that she organized. <laughs> Unfortunately, James is also spying on Jessica for Margot, whom he is absolutely terrified of. Margot describes him as a pitiful fool for having fallen for Jessica, uh, which, you know, I kind of agree with Margot there, but... <laughs> Then, lastly, and importantly, we have Josh Smith. Josh is the older brother of one of Margot's former victims. Uh, I believe this is from the immediately previous volume, Beware the Babysitter, uh, where Margot was hired as the babysitter 
of uh, Josh's brother, who I believe is named Georgie. And uh, I think she killed him by drowning him. Is that correct? Yeah, Georgie had witnessed her, um, like, robbing her mother's collection of jewels, and she had to silence Uh, him. Oh, yeah, forever. (laughs) Um, So Josh has left home in pursuit of Margot, uh, spending all of his money in the process and becoming estranged from his grieving mother as well, because he really wants to put Margot in jail. Yeah. He's constantly described as, like, gaunt and hungry-looking because he's barely eating anymore. He spent all of his money making this happen. When he gets to the climactic party at Lila's, the first thing he thinks about is how he wishes he could get some of the snacks to eat. uh, Just so he would have some calories to, like, tackle Margot if he needs to. Real (laughs) poor guy. Those are all the characters I've noted. Is there anybody else that you thought was important that I left off? I don't think so. I think that's more than enough. (laughs) more than enough this is a big cast (laughs) all right so let us go into the summary of this wild 339 page (laughs) magna edition yeah so just to quickly summarize for those who are new to uh this magna series in the books that were leading up to this one um elizabeth and jessica were both running for prom queen and it caused a lot of hostility between them. And then at the jungle prom, Jessica had this idea to get Elizabeth drunk so she'd kind of become a sloppy mess and make a fool out of herself and then Jessica would be elected prom queen. They had some sort of fight and then Elizabeth ended up storming out of jungle prom with Jessica's boyfriend and then she got into this car accident um, that left Jessica's boyfriend dead and so she was put on trial for this accident since she was drunk at the time (laughs) Um, but was ultimately acquitted when someone else came forth saying that they were the ones who actually caused the accident Um, but there's still like a lot of hostility between Jessica and Elizabeth that carries throughout this book and so that brings us to the start of the evil twin So, (laughs) it's the holiday season in Sweet Valley. (laughs) The girls are heading into their last day of school before break, yet it's not all holly and jolly around the Wakefield house. (laughs) Um, The twins are barely on speaking terms with each other. Jessica's still wracked with guilt from what she did at the jungle prom. And their brother Stephen is home for the holidays from college, as we noted. So around the breakfast table, their parents informed them that right after Christmas, their dad got an all-expenses-paid trip to San Francisco, paid by this law firm that's trying to recruit him and give him this wine-and-dine experience. He didn't even know he was a candidate for this job, Uh, but this tickets and itinerary just showed up in the mail isn't that wild (laughs) yeah and he doesn't think to like call anybody or confirm he's just like free tickets (laughs) and a letter perfect yeah so that comes into play a bit later in the book so that day at school they're doing these secret santa candy cane grams which you might be familiar with if you've seen the movie Mean Girls, where a secret admirer uh, sends you a candy cane and then someone dressed up as Santa delivers all the candy canes throughout the day, which is such a fun idea. Except Jessica gets a candy cane with a note that says, Happy Horror Days, Jessica. Oh my gosh. And Elizabeth gets one that reads, Wreck the halls with bloody bodies. <laughs> I just love when characters receive these 
insane warning notes that have no purpose. <laughs> well, this is a very like point horror moment. Um, the receiving of notes like this with uh, with bad bad puns or poetry. <laughs> yeah, um, and I'll say they do have some purpose in that like. Like by page 93, Liz is still thinking about this rhyme and it's she's saying it's going to give her nightmares if she thinks about it before bed. That's the power of poetry. It's true. <laughs> but it's also an example of um, Margot just being really sloppy with her crimes because she didn't have to serve them these warnings <laughs> that she was coming no. for them. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, these spooky notes were sent by Margot, who has made her way to Sweet Valley. She's already strutting the halls of Sweet Valley High, and she's convinced that by New Year's, she'll be stepping into her new life as Elizabeth Wakefield, and nothing can stop her. She knows everything about the Wakefield twins, how they dress, their mannerisms, their friends, even what they like to eat. And uh, part of the way she's getting off this intel is through... James, this guy who she paid $2,000 to to date Jessica and feed her this information. And all goes according to plan at first, but then he sees Margot dyeing her hair blonde and wearing different color contacts and starting to dress differently and starting to talk differently. And he's spending all this time with Jessica because he was contracted to, but now he's developing these real feelings for her and he's getting the sense that whatever Margot has up her sleeve, it can't be good for the Wakefield twins. Uh, and he's worried that what he's doing is putting Jessica in danger. So he meets up with Margot one day and tells her that he wants off her payroll. And she doesn't take this news very well, of course, and she says if he ever tells Jessica about her or their deal, that she'll kill Jessica and then kill him. So Marco's really confident that her plan is going to work out flawlessly. And this is evidenced by the fact that she's actively testing if anyone can tell that she's not Elizabeth. And they really can't. Like she goes no. to the twins' house. She hugs their mom. She moves things around Elizabeth's room. She even goes on dates with Elizabeth's boyfriend, Todd. And these other characters have a sense that Elizabeth seems a little bit off. She seems a little bit out of her normal character, but they're all still convinced that they're interacting with Elizabeth, this slightly trashier version of Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> at, at worst, they think they are interacting with Jessica, pretending to be Elizabeth, and they just kind of wave that off like, oh, Jessica. Yeah. Oh, these are just twin shenanigans. <laughs> exactly. This has all happened before. <laughs> So James has now fallen head over heels for Jessica, and he realizes that the only way he can protect her from Margot is to break up with her, and Jessica's really devastated, but um, as we noted, the good news is now we have two men, James and Josh, who are both having this sense of what Margot's plan is, and they both want to stop her. And as a matter of fact, Josh is out there just at every crime scene that takes place following these clues that lead him to Sweet Valley. And even once he arrives at Sweet Valley, he is able to find where Margot has been staying. And he's sort of yeah, following this trail of breadcrumbs. And interestingly, once he gets to her apartment that she was renting, it's just covered in weapons and printed out photos of the Wakefield twins. <laughs> 
So one night, Jessica gets a call from James, uh, her ex-boyfriend now, and he's very upset. He says that he needs to urgently see her. This can't be discussed over the phone. He wants to see her in person. <laughs> yeah, the classic maneuver. I, I really, I know it would be expedient for me to tell you this information over the phone, but let's meet in a place where I can die horrifically <laughs> instead. Yeah, let's meet in a very risky situation. <laughs> so he asks her to meet him on the pier, and he plans to warn her about Margot and say that um, her and Elizabeth's lives are in danger. So Jessica begs Elizabeth and Todd to drive her to the pier to meet James. And then just as they arrive, however, they catch this glimpse of James in a scuffle with someone. And then they witness him being pushed off the pier, falling to his death below. On the rocks. Yeah. Squished. So Todd tries to run after the person that they believe to be the perpetrator, but it was very dark and stormy. They couldn't really see who the perpetrator was very well. So the person that he tackles to the ground turns out to be Josh. He had tracked Margot to this very pier right as she was fighting with James, and he, he was so close to taking her down. So he's screaming, no, no, this isn't me. Like, I didn't do it. You have to find this girl who looks exactly like the twins. The twins <laughs> are in danger. He's saying it very clearly <laughs> incredibly i mean he gets it all out like he gets the entire story out and they're just like man that guy was crazy why'd he murder james like that yeah. huh i wonder what james had to tell you <laughs> so of course this gives margo enough time to creep back into the shadows uh, after pushing james off the pier and the police come and arrest josh so unfortunately now the only two guys who knew what Margot's evil plan was are now out of the picture. One is dead and one has been arrested. Okay, so the twins' parents, remember, are off to San Francisco on this mysterious all-expenses-paid trip. It starts out great, but once they get off the planes, things start to get a little bit fishy. There's no car to pick them up at the airport. The hotel they were supposed to go to has no reservations for them, and the client or the law firm that Ned was supposed to go to has no record of this meeting that was supposed to take place. And their mom is getting these bad feelings that this wasn't just some kind of clerical error, that something's more malicious than that, and she just immediately wants to get back to Sweet Valley because she has this feeling that her children's lives are in danger. So they spend a little bit of time sightseeing in San Francisco and then gradually make their way back to Sweet Valley. Very gradually, <laughs> step by step. Every step of the way we are with them. It is riveting and consequential too. <laughs> so dear reader, you can feel free to skip the chapters involving their journey from San Francisco to Sweet Valley. So this brings us to New Year's Eve. This is the night that Margot's plan is supposed to go down where she's going to kill Elizabeth and take her place. So we're at Lila Fowler's beautiful New Year's Eve party, the party of the year. Didn't this party sound so fun? It does. I wish we spent more time at the actual party. I feel yeah. like almost immediately upon getting there, we meet a couple people who are hanging out. 
and then Jessica and Elizabeth like disappear into like bathrooms and uh, you know second floor third floor areas where the party is not taking place yeah. and it's unfortunate because I would like to uh, take a little bit of a jaunt through <laughs> this very rich house with these yeah. very spoiled kids same I wanted to be at this party so bad for the floral um. arrangements alone so Marco is going to kill Elizabeth at midnight and emerge into 1994 as the new Elizabeth, <laughs> leaving her tragic previous life behind her. So step one, she's going to wear an identical dress to the one Elizabeth is wearing. Step two, she is going to separate Elizabeth and Todd, and she does this by luring him to an upstairs bathroom and just bonking him on the head. <laughs> Step three, she's going to lure Elizabeth out to the pool house under the guise of being Jessica and needing Elizabeth's help. Step four, stabby stabby. Step five, <laughs> bury Elizabeth in the woods and then go back to the party to get her New Year's kiss. <laughs> I want to know how she pre-dug a hole, which she did. She tells us she did and somehow stayed clean enough to attend the party yeah and how'd you do that there was no sort of security guards or anything wondering why someone was digging a hole <laughs> yeah i don't believe that that's weird okay so she's crafty but... <laughs> steps one through three go according to plan she's bunked out todd she gets elizabeth to the pool house and now we're in this big climactic moment elizabeth is really confused of course and she's terrified when she realizes that this imposter has been behind all of these like strange occurrences over the past couple of weeks she's been the one who's been creeping around elizabeth's room she's the one who killed jessica's boyfriend james and now she's here to carry out this twisted plot so we get several pages where Marco kind of describes her motivations and her traumatic life experiences, which have influenced her decision to kill Elizabeth. So luckily, that means that the good guys have a bit of time to catch up to them. <laughs> she also seems very committed to actually killing her like at the stroke of midnight. Yeah, that's a bit extra. So, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but it's all about this symbolism of, you know, leaving her old past behind her and then stepping into this beautiful new life at the start of the new year. New year, new you, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Todd wakes up and somehow this concussion had bunked some sense into him because he remembers <laughs> what Josh said back on the pier that someone who looked exactly like the twins was out to get them. And so he rushes down through the chaos of the party to try to find Elizabeth. And then simultaneously, Jessica has this really bad feeling as well. She can sense Elizabeth is danger is in danger. So she, you know, runs around to try to find Elizabeth. And then Josh has escaped from jail and he's followed the twins to Lila's party because he just knows that this is where Margot intends to claim her next victim. So Jessica reaches the pool house first. She bursts in, shocked to find two identical Elizabeths. And we sort of have this bit of a moment like we did in Silent Stalker, um, Super Chillers episode one, where there are two identical people, each proclaiming to be the good twin. And Jessica has to decide who is the real good twin and who is this evil <laughs> imposter. And once again, we don't have either of them having like an evil mustache to make this <laughs> a little bit easier. 
Thankfully, Margot very quickly gives up the game by like lunging at <laughs> Jessica. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as soon as Jessica looks into Elizabeth's eyes, she knows that this is her real sister, her beautiful twin sister that she's known her whole life. And even aside from the lunging, she can just tell when she looks in Margot's <laughs> eyes that they're just these soulless eyes filled <laughs> with evil. <laughs> There's nothing there. <laughs> Um, it's like looking into two Christmas ornaments. Yeah, exactly. Nothing, nothing. Or like two back. trash can lids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Josh and Todd make it to the pool house just in time, um, right before Elizabeth is about to be stabbed, and Josh rushes at Margot, pushing her out through a glass window of the pool house, and she falls to the ground below, and a piece of glass from the window had stabbed her in the fall. And she's dead. But oh. as the sun comes up on a new year in Sweet Valley, <laughs> everyone gathers on the grounds of the Fowler Mansion. The police are on the scene. The paramedics are there to take away Marco's body. And the twins' parents are there to comfort Jessica and Elizabeth, who have reconciled from all of their jungle prom drama. And everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There's only, what, um... Another 200 books in this series where they'll go through uh, many more travails. But for the moment, everything is happily ever after. I do have to add a bit of a PS onto that happily ever after. Um, <laughs> did you happen to read a Sweet Valley book that takes place a year later called Return of the Evil Twin? <laughs> <laughs> See, you know what? I have not read that, but I think there might be a little bit more to come in this story. I'm just going to give you a bit of a nugget to grab your attention. Margot also has a twin. <laughs> oh. Again, I have lots of questions for you, Mr. Wakefield. <laughs> on to our fashion commentary portion of our show which we call blood and lace and boy oh boy are there some great outfits to discuss <laughs> i feel like in our first two shows we've been sort of deficient in this category <laughs> uh, where we've had to really stretch things out to find those outfits but here oh boy we have so many so many 90s party dresses described um i'm gonna start on the bottom of page one yes <laughs> So Elizabeth is trying to choose something to wear to the last day of school before Christmas break. She's thinking of wearing an old pair of khakis and a polo shirt, which is a crazy choice. That's sort of like a uniform you would wear if you worked at Target. Um, <laughs> well, it's Elizabeth we're talking about here. But then her other option is one of her favorite outfits, a fancy tuxedo shirt with a matching bow tie, trousers, and vest. A wry smile touched her lips. Jessica had always loved this outfit, too, and she'd borrowed it all the time in the old days. So she went from, like, a polo shirt and khakis to this extremely formal tuxedo <laughs> outfit. <laughs> but I love that. I think it sounds really glamorous. 
I, I love that outfit a lot. I do question exactly how Elizabeth would wear it because, yeah, I think it would be more formal. I think it would be a little bit cooler on Jessica. Yeah. Like the way she'd style it. Like, I don't think she'd tuck it in the same way that maybe <laughs> Elizabeth would. Uh, so I can see why Jessica borrows it in the old days. Yeah. Uh, by that, I think they mean like two weeks ago. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen a, a picture of that. For sure. My next favorite outfit was on the bottom of page 20. So this takes yes. place during <laughs> the um, Secret Santa candy cane grams. It says, trust Dana to make even an elf costume look like this year's hottest fashion, Elizabeth said laughingly to Todd. Dana Larson, lead singer of the popular Sweet Valley High rock band, The Droids, was wearing a bright green mini dress and red tights and gloves. She'd even tinted her short blonde hair green and red for the occasion. <laughs> I love that the idea of matching your hair dye to your dress. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, this is an iconic look. She's really committed. And she doesn't seem like the type who would commit to this sort of thing. <laughs> like to the outfit, yes, but to like being an alphagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I love that she does. She really makes it work. Yeah. My next favorite outfit was at the bottom of page 97, and it's one of Lila's outfits. So again, Lila is very rich and very fashionable. Mm -hmm. um, this is right before she's taking a few days trip to Paris. Um, she says that she slipped on the cropped black jacket that went with her red and black traveling dress. So how do I look? She asked Jessica, <laughs> twirling. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what a traveling dress is, but I really liked that description, and I would love to find one for my next trip. <laughs> See, I think that neither of us is wealthy enough to know what a traveling <laughs> dress is, um, but I think it's it's like one of those terms that like when you know it, you know it. Yeah. And um, it's not like you'll find it online because the sort of people who know it would never post it online. <laughs> it's like a it's like a real shibboleth, right? You know, it's like a secret code that gets you into the club. Yeah, or that secret <sighs> island that only rich people know about. <laughs> you don't want don't go to that island. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I just also wanted to describe. The outfit that Jessica decided to wear to Lila's New Year's Eve party, I thought it sounded really pretty. It says, Jessica twirled again, giving the gowns ruffled taffeta hem a flirty flip. The sequins, the bare spaghetti straps, the look was both sexy and elegant, Jessica's favorite combination. <laughs> I thought that sounded very cute. Agreed. What is taffeta? Um, it was described several times. Yeah, it's a fabric that um, it's sort of a synthetic fabric that you probably have seen if you've seen pictures of 80s and 90s party dresses. It's sort of like a stiffer, shiny fabric. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It lends itself cool. well, well to ruffles. <laughs> ruffles. That's, I, I, it sounds ruffly, so that is what I was picturing. Yeah. Good. Cool. How about you? Any, mm -hmm. any other favorite outfits or fashion commentary? So Liz's fancy tuxedo shirt and uh, Dana Larson's punk elf outfit <laughs> were the two that I 100% underlined. Love those. Um, so I didn't know, I mean, I noted a lot as I went along, but really I, I was just left kind of with a question, um, particularly because we did not read the previous Magna edition, A Night to Remember, which is all about the jungle prom. And of course, you know, I was very curious to, to just imagine like what they did wear to the jungle prom. But then I thought, oh no, 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 no. I don't care what they are wearing to the jungle prom. What are we wearing to jungle prom? <laughs> So you get the invite in the mail, which I assume is what they do for proms. <laughs> uh, 
uh, it's delivered by like a little monkey or like some parrots. They yeah. they come in through your window, drop the invite off. Uh, you're coming to Jungle Prom. What are you wearing? Okay. I think I'm going to go with some sort of, well, it has to be floor length because this is a prom in the 90s, a floor length taffeta ball gown, but the print is like a cheetah print fabric um, to make me look like a jungle cat at the jungle prom. I probably also do like some cool like face paint or makeup (laughs) to complete (laughs) the look. (laughs) That sounds so good. What do you think? Okay, so I'm thinking a sort of jungle green tuxedo. I don't even know if those exist, but I want to make it exist. I want to wear, um, this is maybe a custom-made sort of situation. I'm imagining sort of a bolo tie type situation with maybe some, like, banana pendants on it. Um, So it's like they're dangling from me. I've grown these. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that sounds breathtaking. And then maybe just to, if I really want to go like all out, like these may be removed later on, uh, but to to, to like show up, to make an entrance, you stuff some palm frowns down the seat of your pants uh, so that you have like a peacock tail, (laughs) like you're emerging from the brush. So dramatic. We need that kind of drama at a jungle prom. There's not enough drama. <laughs> no, there's the one thing you know about jungle proms. No drama. Drama free zone. <laughs> okay, should we move on to our bad moonlight segment? We should. Let us. T- oh boy. Okay. So, you know, we've mentioned it before. This is a (laughs) 339-page book. There is a lot that's happening. Um, I will say that, I guess, overall, I was surprised that there weren't more bad Moonlight moments than there were. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I still have a very long list. But considering the length of this book, I guess I was surprised. Nevertheless, those I found, I think, are worth noting Uh, This comes on page two, and it refers to that jungle prom, of course. And I think we have some really masterful writing from our ghostwriter, Kate William, here. A shadow clouded Elizabeth's blue-green eyes, and she pushed the tuxedo outfit aside with a sharp gesture. Those innocent days of sharing and giggling were long gone. Jessica was no longer truly her sister, no longer her best friend. Since the fatal night of the jungle prom, everything had changed. I love that. I think it's beautiful. I want to know what her sharp gesture is. This is, in fact, our first, I think, meaningful reference to the Jungle Prom being a life-changing event, which will continue throughout the remainder of the book and will make me laugh every every <laughs> one of the times that Jungle Prom is mentioned. Uh, so a nice little moment here just to dramatically begin things. I love <laughs> um, There's So I guess it's also important to note that like maybe the first... 50-ish pages of this very long book are dedicated (laughs) largely to recap of recapping all of the things that happened in the five parts of this series before this book, which makes sense. You want to get the the new readers up to speed. There's one moment on page six that made me laugh quite a bit down near the bottom of the page where Jessica is thinking about the state of her current love life and how it's a little bit bittersweet because on the one hand, well, her boyfriend is dead. But on the other hand, she's got a new dirt biker boyfriend. (laughs) At least she had a date to look forward to today. Her spirits lifted a little as she thought about James, the gorgeous dirt biker she'd fallen madly in love with after he won the Sam Woodruff Memorial Rally. 
Aw, Jessica's heart sank again. <laughs> sure, it was great going out with someone new. It boosted her ego to have a guy as sexy and intriguing as James paying so much attention to her. But she never would have organized the dirt bike rally in the first place if Sam hadn't been killed in the tragic car crash the night of the jungle prom. <laughs> so you can see just from these first two, and again, those are just like four pages apart. It's going to like go on this, this line for quite a while, reminding us of all these terrible things that happened on that fateful night. This scenario is just too much for a high schooler you shouldn't be out organizing dirt bike rallies <laughs> just go to a pep rally <laughs> i mean she's doing this also like while her sister is is on trial for manslaughter <laughs> it's just been a very busy few weeks i think in the yeah. life of these two twins <sighs> anyway so the other thing i would note is that there's actually not a ton of specifically holiday themed business in this book which is a little bit disappointing because it is sort of presented as a Christmas and New Year's book. I mean, arguably, we spend more time with New Year's Eve mm -hmm. than we do with Christmas. But we do have that final day at school with the candy grams being sent around. And there's one funny moment that comes when I believe this is, let's see, it's on page 18. Yeah, it's when uh, Jessica receives her candy gram from Ken, who is dressed up as one of the elves. And we have this exchange uh, where he pops into the class and he says, well, I have a candy cane for you anyway, said Ken. She shrugged. OK, hand it over. You know the routine, Jessica. Jessica couldn't help but laugh as Ken pulled her onto his lap. He winked at the class. This is what I like about this job. Jessica <laughs> wagged a finger at him. Just don't get fresh, Matthews. Ken grinned. I wouldn't dare. Now tell Santa's helper what you want for Christmas. So I'm just curious about why everyone here is accepting <laughs> as typical routine teenage girls sitting on the lap of Santa's elves. That is not that is not a Christmas tradition by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, that's outside of his job description. All he had to do was drop off the candy cane and that leave. Was it. That was it. <laughs> Ken. I don't know this Ken Matthews fellow, but don't, I don't, don't like, like that him. Guy. <laughs> Back to the North Pole for you. Oh, let's see. Oh, uh, one really good moment comes quite a bit later on page 50, where <laughs> Margot sneaks into the Wakefield home pretty regularly. And she, well, she actually like um, finds a way to sneak in through the basement and just like walks up the stairs. And like when she thinks the girls are in their room, she'll like go wander around and like interact with Steven or something. She's having a great time with it. But at one moment, uh, when she knows that Elizabeth is out, she goes into Elizabeth's room and reads her diary. And when she does, she's actually caught up to speed with all the stuff that we already know, specifically all the stuff that, uh, that Jessica has done in intercepting Todd's letters to Elizabeth during the trial uh, in this time when she was trying to hook up with Todd uh, behind Elizabeth's back. Anyway, some really unflattering stuff. Uh, on the part of Jessica. And in response to this, Margot clucked her tongue and thinks, that Jessica, she's really a girl after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, showing the affinity between these two people, which again makes us think like, why, why is Margot trying so hard to be something she's not? Just be Jessica or better yet, just be friends with Jessica. I think you two would make a great power duo. Yeah. Better if there's two of you than just simply one. I think in return of the evil twin, 
<laughs> she does learn her lesson, and she realizes that she'd be better suited as Jessica. Does she so, really? Oh, yeah. Man. It just takes some time. <laughs> Next December, I know what we're doing. There's other moments like this, like um, on page 71, where uh, Margot agrees that her and Jessica have, uh, they both understand the advantages of high hemlines and low necklines. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Not Elizabeth. There's also on page 62, so a little bit before that, we have a wonderful description of Jungle Prom. Okay, so yeah, this is one of the many dream scenes where Elizabeth is remembering Jungle Prom. She's sort of like reliving it through her dreams and discovering like in her mind palace a little bit more information about what happened that night until she has the full story. And here she's just describing how every detail is perfect at Jungle Prom. This is what Elizabeth thought with satisfaction as she arrived at the gym. All those long hours of preparation had paid off. The decorations were beautiful. The kids were thrilled by their mini yearbook souvenirs, all one word. <laughs> and the band Island Sunsplash was fantastic. <laughs> Once again, making me really, I, I don't have uh, a night to remember in my collection, but I desperately need it to have the full details about everything, like what a mini yearbook is, what sort of band Island Sunsplash is. Um, they do sound like a wonderful contribution to this uh, this whole vibe. Yeah, I would love to hear Island Sunsplash. I, I imagine it's got like a steel drum in there somewhere. Oh. <laughs> just one no many the next moment is a great lila moment on pages 75 and 76 lila is quite surprised when jessica is very nice to her and her notion of very nice is jessica surrendering an outfit and saying hey this outfit would look great on you now of course jessica in this scene is played by margot Lila doesn't recognize this. She instead thinks for some reason she can't quite put her finger on. Jessica is just nicer than usual. She is so thoughtful, so selfless. And she doesn't quite know why until on page 76, she decides what the reason must be. She's pondering here. She says, what's with Jess today? She was being so attentive and complimentary, asking Lila's opinion and hanging on her every pronouncement. She seemed so grateful just to have Lila's company. Maybe she's feeling sentimental because it's the holidays, Lila surmised. Or maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one who's different. <laughs> Lila spooned up the last drop of ice cream. Now that her parents were back together, she was happy, relaxed, less self-centered. Wasn't it only natural that some of her new attitude would rub off on the people around her? <laughs> I love that. That is the most self-centered like perspective <laughs> one could possibly have. Oh, I'm happier, so other people around me are happier too, even though they're dealing with like dead boyfriends and stuff. Lovely. We have actually a mention there of uh, Lila's dark eyebrows being lifted. But my next bad moonlight moment is another great piece of writing revolving around eyebrows on page 84, where <laughs> Todd is hanging out with fake Elizabeth, or faux Elizabeth, uh, Marco, of course. And uh, <laughs> it's at this moment where Margot, as Elizabeth, brings up the idea that maybe they should go to a concert instead of a boring old play, which is what they were supposed to do on their date. Maybe they should go see any number of heavy metal bands. <laughs> And uh, when she says that, quote, Todd's eyebrows shot up so far they almost disappeared into his scalp. 
<laughs> Since when do you like that kind of music? Um, I love that. That's a wonderful description. Um, and also, I, I really want to know what heavy metal bands those were, because I do think they would be very funny coming out of Elizabeth's mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that they didn't even try to include any names of even fake heavy metal bands. They could have said something like Thra Thrasher. <laughs> yeah, Thrasher. There you go. But they couldn't even think of something that sounded heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> I, no Island Sunsplash on that list. <laughs> Island Sunsplash sounds like a perfume. True. true. <laughs> it smells like coconuts and big flowers yeah. and breeze. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. um, there's a similar moment like this where the ghostwriter can't be bothered to like think up any specific examples. It's a Lila moment on page 189 where she has gone off to Paris for the holidays and has just returned. There are a couple specific things name dropped here like she saw the Mona Lisa at the Louvre but Jessica accuses her of spending most of her time guy watching and Lila says right she confirmed with a grin and the city is just crawling with celebrities really cool European celebrities not boring Hollywood types. They practically all have royal titles. I'm really curious what European celebrities she's referring to here. Like, who would she recognize? <laughs> who would she actually put forward? I have to imagine she saw, like, Michael Caine, Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> she's, like, seeing these old, old European men and saying, like, ah. <laughs> yeah, well, if we learned anything from our last book, uh, it's probably a celebrity that we wouldn't consider to be a heartthrob. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's my guess. We also have a number of moments. Now, I'm not going to read these ones to you. They, they are so funny to me because they happen in relatively quick succession. There's one on page 102, one on page 114, and then one on page oh, uh, 174, where we have three different characters described as being very, uh, let's say, aggressive with bread and sandwiches. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on page 102 we have a a lightning striking i think this is during christmas dinner and elizabeth crushes a butter roll in her hands <laughs> um a couple pages later josh is described as tearing into a sandwich because he's so hungry again he's like ravenous and he doesn't have much bread left and then on 174 steven the older brother is slapping a sandwich together <laughs> these descriptions are just again fantastic Another of my favorite moments occurs on page 134. After Josh tears into that sandwich, he goes and finds Margot's room uh, where she's staying uh, and she's renting at this. Um, what exactly is the building? Is it just like a... I'm not it's sure. It's like sort of a sort of a hostel i can't imagine yeah. that it's a place that margo would be able to afford but i guess she did just steal off those jewels so yeah she's got a lot of money <laughs> remember she's like taking out like big wads of cash to pay for things and yeah. everybody's like whoa jessica where'd you get that money and she's like don't ask me <laughs> but this is a great moment where josh sees the conditions that margo has been living in in her little rat's nest <laughs> This is actually starting at the very bottom of page 134. The room was like a direct glimpse into Margot's diseased, rotten soul. 
Her fresh-skinned, beautiful face was a mask. This was the real Margot. Slowly, Josh ventured forward, his stomach heaving as the rank odor assailed his nostrils. The room was a filthy mess. Dirty, rumpled clothes were piled everywhere. As Josh walked, he kicked aside half-eaten bags of chips and donuts and greasy paper plates holding the moldy remnants of fast-food meals. Uh, which I think that's probably inaccurate because like fast food doesn't even get moldy. That stuff lasts forever. <laughs> more appalling than the garbage, though, more frightening even than the assortment of knives carelessly scattered <laughs> on the desktop was the bizarre way in which Margot had decorated her temporary home. My God, look at the walls, he thought. So, yeah, she basically lives like, I mean, especially with like all the knives scattered around. It's like she lives like the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what it reminded me of more than anything was uh, a very popular meme online, the uh, uh, damn girl you live like this with (laughs) Max Goof and Roxanne. (laughs) Because, yeah, um, it's surprising that she lives in such filth. But it's also a good question, because if she lived in such filth, she probably didn't smell like Elizabeth. Wouldn't Elizabeth's mother and sister and boyfriend be like, Elizabeth? Do you need to wash your clothes or something? (laughs) She is um, just dousing herself in, what is it, island splash? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, she passes, but um, it's a real, (laughs) that's why she has to spend all that money on, like, lots of bottles of that stuff. (laughs) It's a vicious cycle. Got to steal the jewels to fuel the the perfume budget. Another great Margot moment comes on 163, where she is inexplicably and very suddenly extremely hot for Steven. Uh, (laughs) This is at the bottom of 163. Uh, I think she's been impersonating one of the twins at this moment. Uh, What a night, Margot thought as she snuck into the hallway and from the Wakefield's basement. I am just exhausted. I wish Stephen would tuck me into bed. She smiled at the thought. (laughs) Stephen was such a hunk. She had to keep reminding herself that he was going to be her brother. She'd have to keep her hands off him. He's the best brother in the world, too, Margot reflected, as she settled on the living room couch and wrapped an afghan around her legs. She gets very much at home in this place immediately. She does. <laughs> but yeah, again, fueling my theory that Steven just exists to be like horny fuel for uh, readers. <laughs> I think that's true. There's a great moment on page 177 as well, where Margot is describing how sort of like weak and sheltered the Wakefield twins are for crying over like the death of James and such. And she literally says like, oh, they're so sheltered. Ugh. And it's like, Margot, read more Sweet Valley High. These girls have been through a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I Way think more... they're just being worn down. Way more than any normal teen should have to go through. Like, for sure. Yeah, more so than even she has had to go through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She hasn't really been, like, she's murdered some people, quite a few people at this point. But she hasn't experienced any trauma directly to herself. Marco, yeah. come on, have some sympathy. <laughs> Somebody else who expresses a somewhat similar perspective comes on page 215 uh, with our girl Lila again. <laughs> Who has a great sort of mantra here when she's reflecting on um, uh, the current uh, perspectives of uh, Jessica and Elizabeth, who she sees, she thinks are quite, you know, they're they're kind of downers right now. But it's to be expected because, quote, having somebody murdered really puts a damper on things. Yeah. You know, it's I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> your, your New Year's party isn't going to be quite the ball you thought it might be <laughs> when somebody ends up dead. 
Yeah, just uh, the day before the New Year's party. (laughs) (laughs) Another great moment comes on 220, where Elizabeth herself is giving a nice list of all of her grievances, all the things that have gone horrifically awry. Uh, She says here near the top of the page, it's not like I'm in the mood to celebrate in reference to Lila's party. What was there to be happy about these days? Just two nights earlier, she'd been on the scene when her sister's boyfriend was brutally murdered by a psychopath. Plagued by mysterious dreams and gory nightmares, it had been weeks since she'd gotten a good night's sleep. She and Jessica were still and probably always would be estranged. And the weather isn't exactly helping any. (laughs) (laughs) I love just capping the list off with that. (laughs) I was almost going to go, but it's raining. (laughs) (laughs) There's another good moment on page 279. This is, again, gives you a nice sense, I think, of um, what life in Sweet Valley is like. When they finally arrived at this glamorous party, at uh, Lila's house. It's called Fowler Crest. That's the name of their house, right? Yeah, the manor, the estate. I love that. Uh, <laughs> me too. Uh, Elizabeth is dancing with Todd, and she says, I love this kind of music, Elizabeth said to Todd as the band swung into another jazzy dance tune. It makes me feel like a character in The Great Gatsby or something. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, like, well, which character do you want to be in Great Gatsby, Elizabeth? I'm sure you read it, you know, more intently than, say, Jessica did in school. Um, But then I think about it a little bit, and I'm like, well, you know, the drama and body count East and West Egg don't really hold a candle next to Sweet Valley. So maybe, like, Gatsby life would be a desired alternative. Um, To go along with this, we have a moment on 325. This is right as, in slow motion, the knife of Margot is about to plunge into the chest of Elizabeth. She flashes through her life, and yet it's all happy stuff. A kaleidoscope of images of sounds and scents and colors were whirling through Elizabeth's brain. Memories of childhood and of her high school years. Books she'd read, poems she's written, the songs she'd sung. Faces, places, all the seasons of her life flashed before her. My life, Elizabeth thought, tears squeezing from her tightly shut eyes. My sweet, happy life. She could see Todd as clearly as if he stood before her and her beloved parents and Stephen and Jessica, her very own dear twin sister. I think this is sweet because actually she she has had a terrible life. (laughs) Her life is full of tragedy and heartbreak. And yet for some reason, she's just focusing on (laughs) like poems that she wrote. Nice little moments. Um, She's a very optimistic soul, uh, which makes me think she she may make it through high school after all. A few bumps and bruises along the way, but she'll get there. Let's see. We also have on page 336, (laughs) the very gruesome death of Margot. So this novel has not really been gruesome at all up until this point. Uh, We do have the very sudden death of James. We have the descriptions of the the crimes that Margot has committed previous to this, which seem like they were quite gruesome. But we don't actually get anything gruesome on the page until this moment, um, which is very gruesome. (laughs) It is more gruesome than I think I would have ever reasonably expected in a a book like this. So this is very bottom of 335 onto 336. Uh, Looking down at the patio, he saw Margot lying motionless on her back. A large triangular fragment of glass protruded from her throat. Blood pulsed from the wound, mingling with the rain on the pavement. Her mouth was still stretched wide in a soundless scream, and her eyes were open, but the horrible face was lifeless. Margot was dead. Although, again, considering what we've been told about her and her soulless eyes, how can you tell? How can you be sure she's really dead? There, <laughs> she's no longer like snarling <laughs> anymore. Yeah. 
yeah, that scene is, uh, it's very graphic. It's very, um, you know, fear street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so those are all the bad moonlight moments I had. Do you have any? Um, I just had one to add um, on page 180. So Elizabeth and Jessica just realized that they've both just had the same nightmare. And Elizabeth says, um, what does it mean, Elizabeth wondered. She and Jessica had always possessed a special twin's intuition, and in spite of their recent estrangement, that intuition was still in effect. I just feel like this was a missed opportunity to pilot the term twin tuition, and I wish that they had included that. <laughs> because they use the word twin's intuition several times in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know if this twin tuition is is like a recurring theme in these books. I tried to look it up yeah. and I couldn't find any any good info solid information about it, but I know that they go on many more like life-threatening adventures and I want to know if this comes into play. <laughs> um and if and if their mom continues and if Lila continues having this uh twin and mom and best friend <laughs> tuition. It's funny that you mentioned that because there was a scene towards the beginning where Enid, who's Elizabeth's best friend, did have sort yeah. of that twin tw best friend intuition. <laughs> um, yeah. And she she noted that the person in front of her wasn't Elizabeth, but she thought it was Jessica. But she's like the only person in the whole book that recognized and called this person out for like not being Elizabeth. Um, I feel like we deserve to give Enid a bit more credit for that. Um, she's true. probably the smartest person we've covered in this book. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And because of that, she's like not yeah. present for most of it because yeah, she clocks Margot immediately. And then for the rest of the book, Margot just thinks, oh, that drip Enid. <laughs> I can't wait to get rid of her. <laughs> Okay, should we move on to our critique? Win, lose, or die? <laughs> we should. Uh, so, Katie, why don't you go first? Is this one a win, a lose, or a die for you? For me, this one is a die. Um, <laughs> for newer listeners, we use the term die for books that were enjoyable, but they were just so outlandish that um, they could not be considered a well-written text, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they were good in an entertaining sort of way. Um, mm -hmm. I do have to say that it was um, extremely long, um, could have definitely chopped out about 100 pages worth of, you know, Margot's inner dialogue and um, their parents' transportation yeah. issues. <laughs> But I did think it was rather suspenseful. I thought a few of the scenes were really well written, like the last scene in with the action in the pool house interspersed with the New Year's countdown so that it describes mm -hmm. Margot coming closer and closer to murdering Elizabeth with each passing second. But I thought that was a really cool scene. I'm just saying die because I kind of found the whole idea of no one in these twins life recognizing Marco as an imposter as a very insane premise like sure people can resemble each other but um even 
someone's own twin or someone's own mother like couldn't tell that they were talking to this stranger um what did you think about it yeah so so that is a totally preposterous notion that that they couldn't that they i mean that they just at most think that something is somewhat awry like that maybe again it's the other twin pretending to be the other twin is is very bizarre I think that the part that I have the hardest time accepting again is that nobody like ever cross references. Like the book does take pains to like bring forward reasons why nobody mentions anything that Margot has done while like on a shopping trip or on a date or simply in the house with somebody else. Uh, but none of them are super convincing. And then the time when, the, you know, by the end of the book, when they start coming up, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter because the book's almost over and Margot's nearly revealed anyway. So they just brush it all off. Yes, obviously, I think this one is a die for me as well. Uh, at 339 <laughs> pages, this is a beast of a novel. Um, it doesn't take a super long time to read, again, because you can skim a sizable portion of it if you want to, which I did want to. There's a ton of filler here. I don't actually think that the recap material that comes in the early part of the book is filler or unnecessary. I actually kind of appreciate that as someone picking up the final part of a six-part miniseries within this larger series. But when like things are still being recapped for us in the later chapters of the book, 300 pages later, we're like, why is this happening? <laughs> um, and of course, there are lots of subplots with no significance at all. I broke it down that the book is about 30% rehashing of jungle prom drama, 30% <laughs> dreams and premonitions, 30% of Margot's masquerading, and then 10% of characters eating sandwiches <laughs> angrily. Um, I did, nevertheless, love how soapy it is. I mean, so much has happened in these girls' recent lives, even if little of it is actually like taking place in this particular book. Because um, again, actually not much happens here. It's mostly just Margot doing her thing, but her thing only rarely involves killing anybody. So mm, it's not very eventful, but it does become quite fun and surprising. And as mentioned, kind of brutal in some of those moments, like with James Des and that final confrontation in the boathouse. Loved all that. Yeah. I also just a general thing here about Sweet Valley High, which makes me appreciate this book is that, you know, looking into it more, I have a lot of Sweet Valley High books. I have not read many of them at all. And certainly I haven't really read any around uh, this point in the series, which is very far in, right? A hundred books or, or more at this point, because again, there's lots of special editions and magna editions that take place around uh, uh, within the series, too is that apparently everyone is kind of stuck in a time loop um, because all of this takes place during their junior year. Like there is an entirely separate series that's about the senior year of Sweet Valley High. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, that means that this, um, that means that they go through like various things. Like apparently they go through Christmas multiple times throughout <laughs> their, their junior year. Um, and like so much is happening and you have to figure like, is this happening over the course of like a week or two? Like they've been through all of this heartbreak and murder and trauma. And then they just move on to the next one. Um, I respect that. So like when you get at the very end, <laughs> Jessica asking like, was this all a terrible dream? And Elizabeth is like, no, no, look, Jessica, see the sun rising? It's a new year. It's a new day for us. It's like that's when the time loop activates oh. and they just go back to zero. <laughs> time to time to experience new hell on earth. That's way too much for junior year. When will they study for PSATs? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely would recommend this to readers if you're into soap operas, if you're into Riverdale. Um, I think you would really like mm-hmm. this book. Um, but it is hefty. <laughs> yeah, high recommendation, but low caloric intake. You're not getting a lot of this one. It, it did nope. make me want to go back and read more Sweet Valley. Um, I haven't read these since I was a teen, so uh, I think I'm going to give them a whirl. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I think that we are probably due to move on to our next segment, which we title final exam (laughs) in this segment we like to play uh short little fun games uh in some way connected to the book that we have uh read so i have two questions um but i assume you have some questions as well sure i have a game that we can play it's called do you know your wakefield twins these are actual plot lines from other sweet valley high books um, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I'm going to see how well you know our girls, Jessica and Elizabeth. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Which twin okay. would be more likely to join a cult called the Good Friends that collects money for charity? Uh, Elizabeth, for sure. <laughs> that was Jessica. <laughs> no! Why does Jessica care about charity? <laughs> Which twin would be more likely to date a werewolf who is the son of a werewolf expert. <laughs> okay. Um, so these these are the ones that got me interested in Sweet Valley in general. I have not read them yet, though. Um, I'm going to go with Elizabeth. That's correct. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which twin would be more likely to date a jewel thief who gives her a stolen emerald? Jessica. That's right. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> she loves a rich fella. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, you know, rich by proxy. <laughs> Which twin would be more likely to discover a satchel full of gold nuggets and a map that leads to the treasure of the scorpion? Ooh, I think that one's probably... Okay. Um, Going to go with Elizabeth. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You're great at this. You're <laughs> way better than anyone in the Wakefield family. <laughs> and our final question, which twin would be more likely to be visited by the ghosts of Christmas's past, present, and yet to come? Jessica. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, who's the Scrooge in this <laughs> dynamic? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, you got... Nearly a hundred percent on that so quiz. Close. I'm so, so close. I still want to know what would possibly inspire Jessica to care about charity, but okay. <laughs> I think, as it tends to happen with Jessica, there was a hottie who was a cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should have led with that. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so I have uh, two games for you. My first game is. A simple question, although, of course, it would involve a lot of effort on your part. You have the opportunity to, well, to evil twin another character in this book. So if that's the case, who are you impersonating, murdering, and burying out behind the pool house? What if I murdered Todd Wilkins, Elizabeth's boyfriend, and I came back with, like, a man who has a really intriguing personality uh, and isn't just a blank slate. (laughs) 
Um, I think that he would be a good character to impersonate. I'd probably try to date Jessica. I'd probably try to mm. date Lila. Yeah. Um, I would be, because he's been with Elizabeth now for their entirety of their high school experience that's far <laughs> all too of junior long. high yeah <laughs> all of this endless junior high he needs to uh you know see what else is out there um have a little bit of fun so i think he's the one i would bury in the woods behind lila fowler's <laughs> mansion <laughs> how about you <laughs> um so i feel a real temptation just to, to say lila i mean because then you get to be lila which has mm. its obvious appeals um but i do wonder about like the meta touch of going for Margot. I mean, granted, then you have to live in her disgusting room to like really make it accurate, which is a little bit upsetting. But I would enjoy if Return of the Evil Twin, that was the premise of it, um, that Margot comes back and she needs to like team up with Jessica and Elizabeth because she has an evil twin <laughs> who is trying to twin evil twin her. Um, so very convolutedly, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I think that sounds much more intriguing than the actual plot of Return of the Evil Twin. Maybe that could happen in Return of Return of the Ooh. Evil Twin. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. Number 300. <laughs> All right. Uh, my last game for you is a song-based game. We see the Wakefield Christmas celebration in this novel, and it is extremely depressing. As depicted in the step-back art of this novel, it is not a fun time. Jessica and Elizabeth hate each other at this moment. They're just putting on a face for their parents. Even their parents are not feeling good. Steven's feeling bad. Everybody doesn't really want to be there. They're just going through the motions and capturing it all on, on their video camera. Yeah. <laughs> now, during this, this can't be silent. So what Christmas song was being played on a loop during the Wakefield's <laughs> depressing Christmas celebrations? <laughs> I think that they were probably playing the Charlie Brown's Christmas soundtrack, but only the Christmas Time is Here song um, over and over again, yeah. which is a very haunting melody. It is. <laughs> and a little bit depressing. I mean, it's yeah. ethereal and nice, but in this context, yeah. depressing. They never get to the... No, no, no. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> um, so I chose two. Uh, one, if Liz is controlling the playlist, and one, if Jessica is controlling the playlist, because I feel like they've got different sensibilities here. Mm -hmm. uh, if Liz was in control of this loop, I think she would choose uh, the Band-Aid song, Do They Know It's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Elizabeth. <laughs> I feel like she has the absolute worst taste in music, um, yeah. and she would definitely find that treacly, treacly song to be the perfect depressing soundtrack. <laughs> perfect. And uh, if uh, it was Jessica, I would go with a song that I actually didn't even know of until today, until I looked up Worst Christmas Songs, and it is Funky Funky Xmas by the New Kids on the Block. <laughs> <laughs> a nigh unlistenable song that uh, Jessica probably would have liked. <laughs> I've never even heard that song. Wow. Well, well I, I'll make sure to put it in the in the in the episode right here. And uh, <laughs> oh boy, it is it is um, like some weirdly accented bits, like skits in between some really terrible new kids rapping. Whenever the new kids <laughs> rapped, it was not a good thing. 
That um, wasn't their strong suit. This song doesn't even have a melody. It's, I don't even know what it is. No one has ever listened to this song in a serious <laughs> manner, except for Jessica Wakefield on Christmas Day. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Now is the time, I think, where we can choose our next book at random. Mm-hmm. So do you have your uh, Santa hat ready? I do. It's a, um, it's a Santa beret uh, for a, <laughs> a very jaunty Santa. <laughs> okay, this is me shuffling our, um, our options from our Santa beret. And what we're reading is... Terror Academy Lights Out by Nicholas Pine. Ooh, this is your first Terror Academy, isn't it? Yeah, I'm terrified already. Okay, I'm very excited for this. Um, The author of these books is uh, quite gruesome at times, Um, so this one might be a very fun one for us. Oh, I'm so excited. Starting off the new year on a very spooky note. Yes, yes. Love it. Okay. (laughs) Well, student bodies, um, we do have uh, some information for you. Uh, This is our third episode now. You've gotten a little bit of time to know us and hopefully listen to and enjoy us. And if you want to shout or scream or cry back to us via email, you can now do that. Um, We are happy to receive any feedback or suggestions for, say, games for our next uh episode or anything at all that you want to send our way uh you may just find yourself being read on air uh superchillerspod at gmail.com is our address again superchillerspod at gmail.com uh please send us any messages you see fit to and we will we will talk back to you uh, we also wanted to give out our handles. We recognize now we've been uh, three episodes without telling you how to follow us on social media. Uh, which is very mysterious. Very <laughs> mysterious. I think last time we didn't even mention our names. Uh, we're very good at this <laughs> podcasting thing. You can follow me at, at Jeffrey Canino on Instagram and Twitter. That is J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-C-A-N-I-N-O. And Katie, how can people follow you? You can find me on Instagram at The Haunted Outfit. And you can follow our Super Chillers account on Instagram at Super underscore Chillers. Yes, please do. Uh, super underscore Chillers. Unfortunately, somebody's hogging the Super No underscore Chillers account. One day, one day we'll, we'll, we will evil twin them and get it. We'll have to kill them and take <laughs> their place. <Yes>. Exactly. <laughs> Jeffrey, do you have advice for our listeners? I want you to keep in mind, what happens at Jungle Prom doesn't necessarily stay at Jungle Prom. And I would like to just remind our listeners, if you go home this holiday season and your twin looks dead behind the eyes, remember to trust your twin tuition. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Horror Days, everyone. (laughs) 